With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for the eighth episode of my new podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is the messy human side of change. With me is the author of The Disruptive Mindset, Why Some Organizations Transform While Others Fail. Charlene Lee has authored six books, including the New York Times bestseller, Open Leadership, and is also the co-author of Groundswell. She is the founder and senior fellow at Ultimeter, a research and executive consulting firm, as well as a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Business School. Welcome to the show, Charlene. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we met after all those many years ago at a uh, speech we were bo- or a conference we were both speaking at in Belgium, so I remember it well. To begin, uh, just give us a brief summary of what the book's about. Well, I wrote the book because people kept asking me, how do you thrive with disruption? And I didn't have a good answer, so I wanted to do the research and write the book for that. And what I found is that people oftentimes look for some disruptive innovation or transformation in order to grow. And what I found instead is that the most disruptive organizations, the ones that are creating huge amounts of exponential change, are actually making growth the centerpiece of everything that they do. And growth itself is disruptive. And what most organizations do when they're trying to grow to make that exponential change, they come into these roadblocks. They recognize, as you call this title, the messy side of change, a very human side of change. And they don't want to do it. They back away from that. So they don't want to disrupt themselves. And yet there are things that disruptive organizations do around the way they do strategy and leadership and culture that allows them to push through those tough times, allows them to deal with this messy side of disruption and thrive with it. Okay. And I I mean, I'm just fascinated by the topic because it's both the individual trying to change often, as well as the organization they find themselves in. I often go back to uh, a quote from a Bob Dylan album, he who is not busy being born is busy dying. And it does seem that the the pace of change will never relent ever again in our lifetimes and uh, pushes and pushes us along. So in the book, you know, there's really a couple of ways in which a company has to think about itself. We'll start with the external. So the customer is changing on them and it's forcing the changes. Uh, You mentioned trying to understand what people's, what consumers' unmet, unexpressed needs and wants might be. Can you give us a couple of indications how you've gone about that in your career, what you've seen as best practices? 
Well, I, I think for my career has been built on disruption and, and looking at these new trends and, and changes, um, everything from how the internet came along and disrupted the way we consume media, how we buy things, how we even connect with each other and form relationships. So from, from a personal perspective, as I became an analyst um, at Forrester in 1999, right at the very beginning of the dot-com boom, um, I kept getting curious about all the new things that were coming up. So rather than stay in a place where I was comfortable looking at media, uh, moved into marketing, and then into this new world of social, and then when I started Altimeter, also looking at leadership, because each time I finished a topic, more questions would keep coming up. So I kept staying curious through all of these times about what, how things were changing and doing a lot of listening. Uh, and listening with tremendous empathy to the problems that people were facing because I kept seeing them shift and change as the world around them changed too. Sure. And in the book, you mentioned uh, empathy maps, um, and it actually has four very interesting quadrants, uh, what they say, what they do, what they think, and how they feel. Uh, Given my background as a researcher who's used facial coding, I wonder how you've gone after each of these dimensions, particularly the feeling dimension. Right. It's um, There's nothing quite like going out and actually conducting interviews and seeing people in their environment. So it's one thing to do a survey. It's another thing to really sit with them and observe how are they approaching a particular problem or an issue or getting things done. And it's it's those things that they're not even conscious about. What they say, think, feel, and do could be completely different. And you literally go and ask them, how are you feeling about this right now? When you're doing this exercise I just put you through, what did it feel like? And they're not oftentimes aware of even what those feelings are until you ask them. And it's so insightful and interesting to understand their state of mind when you understand their feelings too. Okay. Yeah. No, in fact, in my research, we've called it the safe feel gap because it's simply so prevalent that uh, they'll say one thing and maybe by degrees you'll unearth how they're feeling and it's often contradictory. Um, Let's move over to the employee side. That's probably where we'll spend most of this conversation uh, because although the customer is changing and you have to suss that out, uh, the employee sometimes doesn't wish to change. Uh, At least some of them don't wish to change and now you're going to have to face that reality. Uh, You say in the book at one point, embracing the messy emotional power dynamics that come with change. So with that internal focus in mind, what specific emotions might we be talking about when we're discussing those power dynamics? Um, Yeah. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, I think one of the, um, the, the biggest one is if you are in a position of power, And it comes from a certain view of the world, the way the world works. And then someone comes along and challenges that view. Your base of power is suddenly challenged. And you may be tempted to just completely refuse to see that new way of the the way the world works because you don't understand it. You don't know how to act in it. You don't know how to lead in it. So you just reject it completely. And, And that's a really dangerous and hard place to be as a leader. And in my work as a leader, one of the, the biggest things is how do you build um, anti-fragility? How do you build resilience into your leadership, into the work, so that you can take in these alternative views of the world and not be shattered by it? 
So there's there's a tremendous amount of work that we as organizations need to do. We don't do enough to promote this type of thinking. Uh, everything, so many of the things that we do in organizations is uh, structured to maintain the status quo rather sure. than to reward exploration, curiosity, and risk-taking. Okay. Well, I remember when I was in corporate life for, I guess, maybe about three years. So there was one reorg and, and another one coming. And, uh, you know, it was uh, disturbing and fascinating at the same time to watch human nature amidst that change. Uh, anger seemed to me such a common emotion. Uh, some people trying to defend their turf. Uh, some people confused as to why there had to be a, a change at all. Some people eager to use the energy and anger to say, I'm going to control my destiny and let's push ahead with things. Uh, it seemed to me, anger, if I had to choose one emotion, in my case, I'd say it's probably anger is what I was witnessing there. Um, when we're talking about turf battles, I mean, obviously, there are some people who are going to embrace change. But I have to admit, I've, I've come up with a term where I call the until workers, uh, until five o'clock, until my next job, until I retire, until I wait out this boss and so forth. How do you, you know, because you, you've got a lot of experience at this point, how do you manage whatever that mass of until workers are to, to bring them along? There's obviously going to be those who embrace the change. But there's going to be quite a few who are dragging their feet, shall we say. Yeah, I, I keep coming back to one of the biggest reasons why people are disengaged is because do, does anybody really care about what I'm working on? If I make a mistake, do they yeah. care? If I don't make a mistake, if, if, does anyone even notice that I'm here? Um, and, and I think there's this human need to be seen, to be heard, understood, and known. And when we don't do that for our colleagues, for our team members, our employees, then they're going to just become until workers. Because why, why put anything into this? I'm just going to get disappointed in the end. So they may have started out enthusiastically and been told over and over again, don't even bother. doesn't make any difference. So, so can a good leader overcome that by town hall meetings? Is it series of emails? Is it having a, 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 a private phone line or ways that they can be a back channel for people to express concerns? I mean, how, how, do, how do you create the momentum and how do you keep the momentum going if you're on the, the advocacy leadership side of, of this change? I, I love Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And he has one true adage in there. It's over 100 years old, this book. And he says, be genuinely interested in other people. And when you are genuinely interested in the well-being of your team members, of your employees, it will come across. Uh, and, and so any of those things that you suggested, having an open phone line, town halls, all those things can work, but you have to genuinely be interested in people's well-being, really genuinely interested in what's happening. And what's interesting that, um, uh, 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 what's the guy escaping me now? The customer engagement um, group, Nielsen. No, anyways, um, it, it, some research, recent research, what some recent research has shown that employee engagement has actually increased because of COVID because we had, we had no choice but to check in with people constantly, to be genuinely interested in their well-being, to see them in their natural environment of chaos and be okay with it. And Plus, it's, some, it's an experience we all share. Actually, so we can we can understand each other we quickly. All We're all can anxious. relate to it, right? And yeah. when you can let down that guard 
that pretense and dissent and have this shared experience of sheltering in place. We're all going through this, the social distancing and the isolation. We all get it. And, and so as a result, the engagement numbers have gone up significantly in this past month. Um, and, and you got to wonder why, what, what's, how is it that when we're in a time of crisis, engagement has gone up, right? Uh, <laughs> and it's because we as leaders have actually taken the time to show uh, empathy, to demonstrate that we are actually concerned and interested and, and curious and deeply care about the well-being of our employees. So speaking of the well-being of those employees, you ha- you have a, a model you take from Robert Kelly and you know where the employees at and how you're going to care about them is going to probably vary based on where they fall in Kelly's model. So if we could, I'd be interested to kind of move through these. Let's start with the easiest one, I suspect, which is the effective followers, those who are active, independent, critical thinkers. What do you think is most important to keep in mind when you're thinking about that segment of the employee base? Well, the 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 effective ones these are like these are people you just love and adore because you have a deep personal relationship with them, and they feel that you are personally invested and they're personally invested too as well. So they're able to feel that they can challenge you. You feel like they are equal partners with you. Um, and it's a very, very effective working environment because there's nothing left unsaid in that relationship that you have between the leader and the followers. Okay. Yeah. It would seem to me this is the group that uh, would readily pick up why, you know, if the customer's changing, why we need to change, would see growth opportunities for their career, job security. So they would seem to be the natural allies of the leaders who, you know, first understood that a change needed to be made. The, the another group on that chart is the alienated followers. Now these are also critical thinkers, independent critical thinkers, but they're much more passive. How do you switch them from passive to active to get maybe to swell the ranks of the effective followers? The thing here is that you're not aligned on the same purpose, and this is why the external focus is so important too. I know we're talking about the internal, but unless you're aligned on the impact you want to have, your purpose, how you want to serve the world you're not going to be aligned. And, and so the alienated wants to bring them back into the fold and, and to make sure that I know you're passionate about these things, but are we aligned on the things that you're passionate about and we're passionate about? So let's have a reckoning about where these things are. And then to have that dialogue to make sure that nothing's left unsaid. If you're not on the same page of what we're trying to accomplish, then we have to have a different discussion. Because if you're not going to be, al- if you're going to be alienated, you could actually become a detractor if you don't agree with the direction we're heading in. If you don't, let's go find you a different place where you will feel like you're being heard. Um, and, okay, and so w- one possibility is actually moving on because they, they do have the critical skills. It's just there's not enough fuel or fire in the belly to make this happen. Um, is it possible that, um, I don't know, that, that uh, you know, sometimes with millennials, we're talking about, uh, you know, some greater purpose. So is it possible that it's both at once, uh, you know, the, the customers are changing, but also that the in these changes, these disruptions, the company has found a, a greater purpose or calling? Could, could that help them? Is it what they can get from a career point of view from themselves personally? Yeah, I'm looking for what levers or combination of levers you've found best get these people over to be helpful rather than just show them the door. 
the reasons why they're oftentimes alienated is because they don't believe in the purpose or the purpose isn't Uh, well formulated. Oh, you haven't even talked about it lately. Like, why are we doing things? I've talked to several millennials and especially the Gen Z, the ones who are just coming out. And what they wanted to is like, I'm going to work really hard for my employer. I want to work with an employer who cares about what they're doing. I don't just want to do a job, even if I'm just going to be there for two years. It's going to be most of my waking hours. It's going to be a place where I develop friendships. I want to know that we're all aligned around the same values and purpose. And the vast majority of organizations may have purpose, mission, and values, but they don't talk about them. They don't live them. Okay. So, so if, that is, if that's combined in with the, you know, how the customer is shifting, that sounds like that's maybe a potent combination? You know, if you don't know where your customers are shifting, then you have issues around your strategy. (laughs) If you're not clear about what your purpose is, then you have issues around just how do you communicate and even more so around your strategy. Again, people who say they have a great culture, love working there. But then I ask them, so what's your purpose? And they go, we don't really know. So it's great to come to work and have a great time, but we don't know what we're fighting for. That's hard to get your head around. And so the problem is that you're then not an effective follower. You're just not engaged. You're, you're just sort of alienated. I want to be helping, but I don't know what we're pulling for. So I, I lay it at the feet of leaders. Again, the, the followership model is the responsibility of the leaders to understand where your followers are. What is it that they need? What do they want? And if you instinctively sure. have these followers who are, are really motivated to want to help, but they're just disenfranchised. Then you got to get on the same page and make sure that what they're interested in, what you're interested in, there's an overlap. If there isn't, then it's not going to be a good formula. Okay. Well, they've got the critical thinking skills. So we got the mind part. So I think what I'm hearing is, you know, the heart and the spirit's got to come along. And that, that certainly makes sense. In Cali's model, he's got some pretty harsh terms because he calls the other two groups, I'm leaving aside survivors for the moment, uh, the sheep who are passive and have no independence and the yes people who are active and also have no independence. Um, so what percentage of employees might be in these two categories? And does this mean you're simply going to discard whatever portion of the company that is? Or is there a way to reactivate these two portions and, and get them into a different category? You may. So for some leaders, they actually like yes people and sheep. Because they just True. do what they tell them, you tell them to, right? So it's great. <laughs> um, the difference is that the sheep, you really have to spell things out for them because they're just like, unless you ask me to do it, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to do anything, right? This is very, very passive. Whereas yes, people, they just agree with you all the time and will be pr- proactive. So yes, people are kind of good to have around, but you fall into groupthink as a result. No one's challenging it. You can go down rabbit holes and be really in trouble. What I love about the difference between effective people and yes people, they kind of look the same. They kind of have the same attitude. The difference is the relationship you as a leader have with them. You actually can cultivate yes people to become effective people by saying, you know, it's not a good thing that we're all agreeing here. I need you to find some way for us to disagree. And it's okay to disagree. Okay. Um, I will agree with you. And we'll move on. I'll be a yes person. How's that? <laughs> um, managers, you let's switch it from the, the rank and file to you have four archetypes of disruptive leaders. Uh, you mentioned steadfast managers, realist optimists, uh, worried skeptics, and agent provocateurs. 
I'm wondering if we could just maybe describe each of these for the listeners. And I also be curious, I don't know if you know what's called the, the big five model. This is five personality traits uh, where you it's often called ocean because it refers to openness to experience, also conscientiousness, agreeableness, extroversion, and finally neuroticism, which is the reverse of uh, emotional stability. If we take each of these four archetypes in turn, if you could maybe tell me just a little bit about what they are, how they function in a disruptive environment, and if you have any sense of how they stand out in terms of personality traits or uh, characteristic you know, mode of working. So let's yeah. start with the steadfast managers. Yeah, the steadfast managers, again, it's a two by two. And the, the idea is that there are two factors. One is an openness to change mindset. Um, and that, again, is part of the, one of the big fives, openness. And then the other one is your leadership behaviors and abilities that are exhibited that actually empowers and inspires other people to take action. And these are the things across a thousand surveys that we did all around the world that correlated with the, the level of disruption that people were seeing. Uh, and so the steadfast managers tend to be really good at empowering and motivating people. So really strong, good leadership behaviors, but they tend to not be as aggressive in terms of wanting to see change as an opportunity. So when they see change, you kind of go, a little scary there. I don't really feel comfortable with that. And they're truly managers. They manage to the status quo and they do it very, very effectively. Are, are they a little bit like yes people who got promoted? Uh, yeah, I think so. Because they're the ones who um, get a lot of work done, and but they're not going to go rock the boat a lot. Okay. How about the realist optimists? Who who it's, are they and what's the, where are they like? Like your effective leaders um, in, in the in the um, fellowship model from Robert Kelly, and they uh, tend to be very oriented to change. They are very optimistic about it, which is why the name's realist optimist. But they're also realists, and they see just how hard it's going to be to create that change. So they're not going to be Pollyannish about it. They know how hard it is, and they have the leadership skills to be, be able to. Um, use power and influence and encourage people to themselves be empowered and to inspire them. So there's sort of this perfect storm of being able to see the change and then make it happen. Okay. So this is maybe the ideal uh, archetype because one thing you mentioned is they handle stress well, which would make me believe that emotional stability as opposed to neuroticism would be a prevalent trait of these people. Yeah, but true there's enough? Also, yeah that's true. But there also this is very interesting trait that they have. They're kind of paranoid, they, <laughs> and that the, the reason they're not neurotic about it. it's a very healthy paranoia that says we may be doing great right now, but it's not always going to be like this. And okay. that drives them to be looking to the future, looking for the change. They think, look, things are going great, but we can always be doing better. So it's like a paranoia that's built on optimism, and one one that's again that's very realist about how the world looks. They are not delusional. They are not trying to paint the world in beautiful tones and pictures. They see the good things, but they can also see the places where they need to improve. There's a tremendous sense of humility um, in, in, the, in, the, in, in, the, in their leadership behaviors. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Leaders aren't always known for humility. So that sounds like it's one of their real strengths. Maybe that critical thinking gets applied to themselves as well as to others. You said healthy paranoia. So I'm curious about the next group because that's the worried skeptics. Do we have a different flavor of paranoia there? 
No, it's it's actually it's a little bit different because the worry skeptics are looking at this plan for change and going, man, that sounds really dangerous. <laughs> that doesn't look like anything I want to be a part of. And they're just really skeptical, like this isn't going to work, right? Or and, and they're very uncomfortable with the change, and they're not that comfortable necessarily being able to drive the the leadership changes. So they're pretty decent leaders. But they're not, and they're good at getting things done. But their leadership um, isn't necessarily driven from being able to motivate and inspire other people and empower them. So their ability to delegate isn't as strong, uh, and to collaborate isn't as strong as some of the steadfast managers, for example. And that's so, the- from the Kelly model, then does this mean these people are the ones who are promoted from the ranks of? I'll, I'll take the other three options: sheep, alienated followers, or survivors. Yes, and and then also it could be the effective leaders, but they just haven't figured out. There was there was some of the people, the effective followers, who were great followers, but they put into a leadership position and just don't have the skills yet to be able to do this. Um, and so I find that it was interesting when I looked at the age differences across all of these. There were no differences in terms of age, so it wasn't like the younger people were more likely to be disruptors and real realist optimists. It was even across every single age group. How about gender? Is there differences in these four groups by gender? Significant difference in gender. Uh, for the, the realist optimists and, and, and across the board, um, within each of these groups, we looked at their disruption scores. And so there wasn't a big difference in terms of who ended up in which group. But within the groups, if you looked at male versus females within them, across the board, women rated themselves as less disruptive than their male counterparts even though they had the same scores for openness to change and leadership behaviors. So we we have one last group, the agent provocateurs. This is only 3%, you say, of managers. Is this the, the most aggressively accepting of change? How, how would we define them and what's no, their they're gender? The, they're, they're sort of my colleagues here in Silicon Valley, the people who t- tend to stand up and say, disrupt or die. They wave their hands a lot in the air. Okay. And then they exit the stage and nothing has changed. Oh. So they talk a great game. They see the change, but their ability to actually make the change happen, to bring the resources and the people and the investments together to actually make that change happen is very, very low. And, and is that group, I know it's small, but does that group tend to be more male or female? Um, I'm trying to remember the numbers on my data. I believe it was about the same. I can't remember. Oh, that's all right. I certainly don't mean to put you on the spot. I, I had a different question because when we're talking about disruption, you're going to be having to push some of these people along. And when you're being the one who's who's pushing and yanking and you know trying to elicit a willingness to change, if you're a man or a woman trying to do that with your staff, I mean, how does that play in terms of gender stereotypes, expectations, uh, yes. acceptance of change? Um, here's here's the thing is. That as a, as a woman, as a person of color, as a young person or old person, whichever way you look at it, as the only in the room, it's always going to be more difficult to be the person pushing for change because you're using so much of your energy and your social and political capital to just belong into that group. So this is the big wake up call. And, and, and what we saw in particular was for women that because um, we did not co- um, capture ethnicity, race, um, those things. We captured age, but the biggest difference was by gender. And what we have seen from this research, but also from many other places of research, 
if you're the only woman in the room, it's incredibly difficult to step forward and be the provocateur, to be the person who has a difference of opinion, because you're already seen as an outsider in the room full of other people not like you. Sure, because we, we, this whole conversation is about change and messy change. But of course, one thing that hasn't much changed is the percentage of CEOs, for instance, who are uh, still white males. I, I think that pretty much always runs around about 95%. So, um, you know, that means that if you have the most senior leadership advocating for change, yes, you could have literally, uh, you know, outside the CEO role, you might have literally just one woman or one minority member uh, in that entourage. Right. Um, and and I, I think what happens is that when you see those momentum building um, for women in leadership, for example, at General Motors, they have a woman, a chairman, and a CFO, all women, the three most powerful positions in the company, all women. So it, it, and it starts with the board making it a priority, other executives making it a priority. And we're seeing the same thing happen now with people of color, African-Americans, when we're disenfranchised um, from the leadership ranks. Uh, it's even worse for African-American leaders within the Fortune 500 than women. You know, it's just as bad. Uh, but when, unless you have this, this concerted effort to bring in alternative voices and to support them, protect them as needed, nurture them, uh, you're going to have this very un, un, non-representative view of what leadership looks like and not representative of what your customers look like and what your employees look like. Sure. And, and we know, you know, America is going to be a majority minority culture here very shortly, if it isn't already. Uh, the customer base is changing. I mean, do the companies that have changed and reflect more diversity in their senior ranks, are they better at this disruptor mindset uh, than those that aren't? I, I would imagine they are, but absolutely, maybe I'm wrong. Absolutely. Absolutely they are. Because when you have alternative voices and perspectives in the room, it forces you to look at the status quo and challenge the status quo on an everyday, every hour basis. Um, I, I have been the only person of color, the only woman of color, the only young person, so now increasingly the only old person in the room. And when you have somebody with a different perspective, it, it forces, it, when somebody's different in a room, it already changes the way the room works and thinks because you're aware of that difference. And you, as a result, you become more open to the fact that maybe the way we think about the world isn't going to be the same. It just sets a different tone when you have differences of opinion already potentially in the room before anybody has even spoken a word. Sure. And different experiences and probably different, uh, you know, vocabularies at times based on, you know, where one's coming from. Is there a critical mass point? Is there, you know, if you're taking this senior levels, is there a point at which you really think, okay, if I got this percentage or, you know, I, I obviously some people have more presence in a room than others, but is there a tipping point where you really feel like, okay, we're on the road to diversity and from diversity, we're on the road to a better disruptive ability? There's a, 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 a sort of basic rule of three. You need three. Okay. Because when you're only one, it's just, you're just the oddball. Two, okay, you got two oddballs in the room who can talk to each other. And, and, and you're still being forced to be representative of your whatever group that you're not a member of. Okay. So, it, but when you have three, it's no longer an oddball thing. You're no longer just being the single voice. You have other people who can carry the weight. And frankly, you can't be dismissed anymore when you have three. 
Okay. Well, that's a that's a good thing to hold on to here. You know, the Trinity is effective in more than one way, one more than one place. One thing I, I loved also, I mean, obviously the the leaders can exhort and have the town hall meetings, all these things. But you also mentioned cultures that manage to have stories, rituals, symbols, traditions. I, I loved your example of the gloves at OXO. Do you want me to tell listeners what that one's about and other ways in which you've seen just things that are in the environment in the company? that could help instill a notion of, of change and being open to other perspectives? Yes. Um, again, I, I think there are certain beliefs that disruptive organizations have. There are things like openness, agency, where employees are empowered to think um, like owners right from the very beginning, and then a bias for action. And again, a, a complete focus on your customers, your future customers. OXO, the company that makes these handhold, you know, handheld kitchen tools, like can openers and spatulas, when you walk into their offices, there's a beautiful wall covered with gloves. And employees had walked all around New York City and found these discarded gloves, wash them, then come in and, and, and hang them up on this wall. And it's a visual reminder, a visual symbol of who you are coming into work to serve every single day. The people with hands that go into their gloves and their work gloves, their big gloves, their small gloves. And they're, you can imagine the hands that go when they were old and young and arthritic. You're serving those customers that those gloves are representing their hands. And you do this every day when you come to work. Well, and, and one reason I love that was it's so sensory and immediate, but it also takes away, you know, we don't know the race of the person's hands and so forth. You, you kind of strip back to the most basic fact that we are diverse without just slapping labels on people. And I, I just found that a, a wonderful example. And it's just a subtle little you know, thing that, uh, you know, every employee as they come through that lobby will, will take in. So I, I just, I, I just really like that one. The changes, the disruptions, I, I have to shift the focus just a little bit. We've we got different models involved in some cases. We can have a startup company. We can have a mid-sized company. We can have a large company that could be the incumbent or the challenger. Uh, we've also got academia and nonprofits. So there are lots of things that can be subject to or be in pursuit of disruption. Uh, from your experience and, and research and doing the book, any differences, any different kinds of challenges or flavors to these kinds of uh, five organizations? Well, I, I think, again, when it comes to academia, I have a couple examples in the book, um, uh, University of Southern New Hampshire, for example. And I think they're one of my favorite examples because this is a not-for-profit uh, university of 3,000 people. And they basically focused, like there was no tomorrow, on their customers, on their students. And these are non-traditional students, sometimes coming back from the military or through, um, through uh, mid-career changes. They were completely focused on that. Um, another example, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, uh, the, the director there, had done this sort of disruption in Germany through multiple uh, museums there for the San Francisco Museum of Art and now at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. That's a nonprofit in the art space. And what do museums do but conserve, right? They, they, the whole yes. idea is to conserve the past. And yet he's at the forefront of disrupting because he's incredibly focused on the experience of the people, the patrons, the people who come through the doors of the museum and now with COVID, how on earth do you create a museum experience virtually? But because they were focused on that experience, and this is the common theme across every single organization that I studied, all of them were focused on the experience, on the, the customer, 
not of today, but of the future. And they made the investments today, anticipating what was going to happen down the road. They made those changes today in order to be there to meet the customers when they were there. The single one thing that all of them did. Okay. And with the, the academia and the, and the nonprofits, like the, the art museum, for instance, is the sense of purpose of mission, is that even more important? I mean, these are not places that are geared toward making money. Well, you know, you said for-profit college, but at least traditionally academia has been a little less focused on the money and more on, you know, things they were trying to impart to people. Is there a shift in focus as to what are the levers you can press as a leader based on these five different settings? Yeah, the, the leader um, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, when he was in Germany, he was just start, starting out as a first art director there, uh, Max Holland, what he did was connect people back to the art, the heritage, um, and the purpose of museums uh, in the community. And again, you have to realize, in, in most cases, the, the museums in Germany were publicly funded. And he said, you know, we can take the money, but we can do so much more. We are community owned this. So it was about private donations and company donations. And the only way you do that is engage people in the mission and the purpose and create the sense that we, our community, owns this museum. So purpose is incredibly important, even more so for nonprofits, because that's why people feel a piece of that, that sense of agency and ownership as part of that, that experience. Okay. The going back just one last time to Robert Kelly's model, as we look at these different uh, size companies and the and the two that are in the nonprofit realm traditionally, uh, is there more proportions of certain kinds of employees in one setting than others? Uh, do we have more sheep, for instance, in a larger size company than we have in a startup? I mean, what's what? How does the game change in that respect? Uh, again, it's so much easier to have more sheep and and um, less engaged followers than uh, in large organizations, just because of the nature of large organizations is that things get distributed. Uh, the, the power and the voice of the top leaders gets um, diluted as you go through the organizations. But something interesting has been happening over the past five, 10 years or so. And that is the rise of these collaborative technologies, the change in how we communicate, the fact now that most people have some sort of cell phone so even if I don't have an email at the company, which is the case oftentimes in very large distributed organizations, I can still find out what my leader, my very top leader is saying and thinking and aligning us against our purpose. And that's a big change now because communications used to be very scarce. So it would be very infrequent and it had to be perfect. But now when there's a sense of abundance around the way we communicate as leaders, they're much more comfortable sharing, much more authentically talking about things, uh, especially during this past crisis, uh, being very transparent about what's happening. And people would rather have bad news than no news. Of course, it's great to have good news all the time, but they really the number one thing that I found in my research that they wanted from their leaders was honesty, because that's how you build a relationship. Sure. Well, tr- trust is still the emotion of business, yes. Yeah, I mean, it was universal across every country that we studied that the number one trait that they wanted in their leader was honesty. Okay, makes makes perfect sense to me. If I don't trust the person, I, I don't respect them. If I don't respect them, why would I, uh, you know, follow them closely? Wouldn't I linger behind instead? The, the one group we didn't maybe touch on in those five organizations is the mid-size, because I would have to think that 
yes, as you said, a, a bigger company can probably have some more sheep. It's more distributive. Uh, a startup doesn't really have time or, you know, a role or any place to hide the, the sheep. What about the challenges of a mid-sized company leader? What, what are they dealing with that might be a little bit different than the startup or the, the big company? Yeah, they're kind of stuck there because they're not quite big and, and have huge layers of hierarchy, but there usually are at least one or maybe two layers of hierarchy between um, the top leaders and the frontline workers. And this is the place where you really want to guard against that frozen middle developing because large organizations that, that permafrost, the frozen middle is already there. It just inevitably is. Uh, but at mid-sized companies, you actually have a fighting chance because your manager is still connected enough to the top and to the fronts so that you can turn them from being gatekeepers to becoming facilitators. And that's the most important thing, that managers don't feel like their job is to filter information flowing up and decisions going down. In an organization where people can speak to each other directly up and down and throughout the different layers of the organization, there's a danger that managers will say, well, what's my job here now? If the top level of the company can speak directly to the front um, line people, then what, why do you need me? And it's because okay. I mean, they're aligned and see themselves as leaders pushing forward and see themselves as those effective followers, see themselves as leaders themselves creating that change. It completely changes the tenor. So it's important for mid-sized company leaders to put the practices and the cultures in place now so that as you grow, you don't fall into these bad habits as large organizations and you can be really effective. The power, again, of scale that you have as a midsize, but also the ability to talk across these layers is definitely a lot easier. Okay. Well, I like that. That The goal is to keep the permafrost layer away for as long as possible to uh, leverage the advantages of, of midsize. Uh, so before we close, I knew you had uh, one question for me. We had a little prelim preliminary conversation, and I knew there was something you were going to want to ask me. Um, so here's your chance. Go go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I think my question is, when you think about um, what is the emotional intelligence that you need for times like this? I mean, there are so many challenges happening right now. There's, there's coronavirus, there's a recession, you've got racial injustice and social injustice being piled upon us. How do we think about how to prioritize these things and how do we develop the EQ to be able to deal with what seems like endless levels of disruption? Sure. Well, I, I think when you know you have your model of the effective followers, those are the ones you really have to have with you and keep them close and keep them fully energized. Uh, when I was thinking about these times and the Black Lives Matter protest and so forth, I went back to someone I think has really done a great job of that, and that is, of all people, perhaps uh, from the world of sports, the San Antonio Spurs coach, Greg Popovich. And uh, here's a man who seemingly would be very straightforward, straight-laced perhaps even. He was in the Air Force Academy, thought about going into military intelligence instead of going into sports. And the things he's done with his players, because obviously the NBA is primarily you know, consisting of African-American players, is he hasn't just talked to them. He's actually wanted to create shared experiences. So he's done things like take the players to see Hamilton on Broadway. He's gone to the African-American Museum in D.C., the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, actually getting out, taking the time, buying the plane fare for them, not that the players couldn't afford it in this case, but having the, a shared experience as opposed to just 
talking at them or even having a conversation with them. To me, that was really indicative of of his emotional intelligence. I, I was very impressed to hear what he's been up to to try to try to nurture those those players he's depending on. Yeah, and what I love about that is that he was doing this far before any of this True. happened. He was very aware that this was an issue that was important to his players and to his team, um, and then asking his entire organization to go through that process. So very enlightened. Yeah, no, it's and you know it's shown in his his results over the years. He's he's gotten the best out of his players. Uh, it's a major city, but uh, it's a small town market in other ways, and he's managed to make it feel like a small club. Uh, you know, on the team, a lot of camaraderie. So we're about up with our our time with Charlene. I want to thank you again for being my guest on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number eight: the messy human side of change. To check out other episodes or my books or other activities, uh, there's always my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com. If you have a follow-up question for Charlene, you can email me at dhill at sensorylogic.com. If you've enjoyed the show, of course, I'm always pleased if you'll uh, submit a uh, five-star rating or whatever rating you might want to give it, a review and all of that. And I like to close every episode with what I think is an appropriate epigram based on the content, the topic we were talking about. As that has changed in this case, I'll go to the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy, who said, everybody thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Mm-hmm.